We are going to be studying church discipline tonight, which probably isn't your favorite topic in the world, but it does fit along nicely with our series, The Nine Marks of the Healthy Church. And uh, we're going through this series so that we can, first of all, evaluate our own church. Are we committed to doing what the Bible says and what the Bible wants? Because when God says it, we should do it. And if we want our church to be healthy, then we need to follow the commands given in Scripture. But also, we're going through it because, Lord willing, one day you'll possibly move off or go to college or wherever it might be. And these are things that you should look for in that church that you are considering. And these are what we would call non-negotiables. So tonight, uh, we come to church discipline. And when it comes to church discipline, unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that won't touch this with a 40 and a half foot pole. They want no part of church discipline. They would call it barbaric, unloving, judgmental. And what they're really saying is that they are weak and they are refusing to obey God's scripture. His word is very clear. There's no argument that we're supposed to be practicing this as a church body. But we are not to, to shy away through threats of lawsuits or uh, canceling from the culture or whatever it might be. We simply need to do what God has commanded us to do. Let's start with the question, what is it? When we talk about church discipline, what is it? In the broadest sense, and this is from the Nine Marks website, church discipline is everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin. So that could be a rebuke or a reprove, or it could be something to, to motivate you to determination and self-control. Preaching, teaching, prayer, corporate worship, accountability, relationships, and godly oversight by pastors and elders are all forms of discipline. All forms of discipline. We often quote 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. So it is God-breathed. It is his very word. And it's profitable. It has value. It has worth for what purpose? For teaching. So when I teach you, I want to teach the word of God because it's his word and it is profitable. But it's also profitable for reproof. If you're in sin or you know someone that's in sin, we don't go with our own opinions. We go with the very word of God for correction. Sometimes that we, we veer off the path that we're supposed to be on and we're supposed to correct that course for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. So church discipline is rooted and grounded in the word of God and in the broadest sense it's to help everyone in the church pursue holiness and fight sin. In a moment we're going to narrow down that focus all right but let's start with this question what can people not like about this? Why do you think most churches don't practice this? Um, Peyton Reagan. Reagan. 
causes you to be held accountable. And what do people not want? I don't want to be held accountable. But if church discipline is going to happen, I might get disciplined. Eva? It can show other people the sins that you have or that others have. It exposes that. Isaiah? Yeah, they think. Yeah, they think they might get publicly embarrassed. Any, any other, Peter? It brings up hard conversations. It brings up some really hard conversations. All right? It's easier just to, to let it slide, right? To not bring it up, to ignore the elephant in the room, that type of thing. So the elders, when they practice church discipline, they've got to put their, their neck on the line, right? When we confront people about our, their sin, we have to first think of what our sin. And we have to deal with our sin. And we have to get our heart right with God. And that's difficult. But then we've got to tell someone that they're wrong. Some of you love that. You'll do that all day long. Love telling people they're wrong, right? And others, that's like the end of the world for you. You don't want to tell someone because they think they're going to point that finger right back at you. So what the majority of churches have done, they've just swept this off the, the table. And they say it's because of love and whatever it is, but they just don't want to do it, all right? You think of things like our summer camp. Our summer camp was a, was a picnic in the park. It's a joy ride. You know, there was a, a, a few rules here or there, right? If you go to other churches' summer camps, what you wear, how you wear, when you use your phone, what you do with your phone, where you go, what time you go to bed, you might not even be there. But these are safeguards and these are boundaries that help us and to guide us. But let's narrow this down more to what, what we mean by church discipline when we talk about a mark. In a narrower sense, church discipline is the act of correcting sin in the life of the body. Including the possible final step of excluding a profession Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of serious, unrepentant sin. Because of serious, unrepentant sin. And I would like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. And we'll come back to this off and on. But go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth is struggling. There are uh, divisions that have arisen. They've begun to tolerate sins in the church. And this one will make you throw up a little bit in your mouth. But it's the perfect example of church discipline. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality is such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. So whether this is a man who's sleeping with his own mother. Or his father's, his stepmom or whatever it is. It's appalling, isn't it? 
an adulterous relationship or a, a relationship sexual in nature outside of marriage already is like, what are we thinking here? But of this magnitude, you have become arrogant and have not mourned and said, when they heard about this, their hearts should have been broken for their church, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, for this man, for this woman, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to send a... Uh, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul brings up two things. He wants this guy gone for the sake of the church. Because if you have someone this gross and this nasty sitting next to you, and it's not you, I'm not pointing to you, singing praises to Jesus... What, what model are you providing for the younger generations? What hypocrisy that the world, all those Christians, they're gross. Look what they're tolerating. So for the purity of the church, get them out of here. And you think of the Old Testament. When someone was hard-hearted and rebellious towards their parents in Moses' day, what were they supposed to do? You don't want to say it because then it hits home, right? You kill them. Kill him. You know what you did in Moses' day to the one that committed adultery? You killed him. That's a way to remove it. To get that out of it. Those who blaspheme God, there was a death penalty that was there. Now that was the civil law and what God had established. Here Paul is saying, look, for the purity and the sake of the church, you can't tolerate this. Get him out. But then also you're doing it for the individual. Because notice, notice he's saying what? I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Man, this might be the very thing this guy needs to hear. He needs to hear this is not normal. The way you're acting is sinful and rebellious. Really? You, you can't be with us anymore. Well, well, why not? You're not one of us. You don't love Jesus. You've never repented of your sin. Get out. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Sounds unloving. But it may be the very thing that saves this man one day. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Apparently they were proud of their tolerance. Don't we love that word today, tolerance? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sanctified. Verse 9, he says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not meet at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters for then you have to go out of this world. He says, you're not supposed to go hide in your holy huddle living in a cave of Christianity you still work and you still live with unbelievers so that you can be a light to them, right? 
I, I didn't say don't associate with them. I'm saying this, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges, but remove the wicked man from among yourselves. When it comes to the church... That person should be dealt with. They should be confronted. Now those outside the church, we bring the gospel to them. So that's an example. In Matthew 18, we have a blueprint. Sounds tough. Sounds difficult to do. It is. But we have a step-by-step blueprint. One day you'll feel this pain. It's Christmas time, but not for you. Because your kid wanted something. And in order to get it, it has to be put together. And wicked, evil people write instruction manuals. And so you open up the thing, and you look for the part, and you lost the part, and then you cut your hand, and all of that stuff. But there, is, there are instructions. There's a blueprint, all right? But those are bad blueprints, so you just make up your own thing. And then you got like a three-legged pony to give your daughter on Christmas morning or something like that. But God's blueprint is good. It's clear. And so, we follow it. We follow it. And we'll get to it. Why is it a mark of a healthy church? Well, when it comes to the purpose of discipline or the purposes, it results in the restoration of the sinner. And I mentioned that before. Because we're willing to discipline people, they can be confronted with their sin and come back. It also is the purity of the church. That's 1 Corinthians 5. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be a removal of those that would uh, have a negative association. You know, there are certain men and women that have even crept up in our own church that have taught wrong things. And they've tried to sway people away. And we've said, no, thank you. You need to leave. You need to move on. Could be the protection of the church from sin. When it comes to church discipline, which sins warrant church discipline? Because I know you're like, oh man, I wasn't paying attention in small group tonight. I know that I'm supposed to be worshiping at all times. Am I going to be called up to the front at the end of this lesson? This is hard-hearted, high-handed rebellion is what it is. This isn't you didn't clean your room, so the elders are going to come after you type of thing. All right? What this is, this is a habitual pattern that you will not, you will not repent of. You'll not repent of. There's times that people have been in this type of sin and they've been confronted and they've said, please forgive me, I was wrong. And you know what happens? The process stops when that happens. Stops. But when they say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm doubling down and there's nothing you can do to change my mind. They are shaking their fist at God. Because when we read Matthew 18, we're like, wow, I know, I know I got in trouble with this. And does it mean they're coming for me next? It's, it's not what it's looking at. It's not what it's talking about. All right. You're looking at, you know, a, adultery. You know, you're looking at those hard-hearted types of sins that are out there. It could be Titus 3, 10, and 11. It could be uh, someone who's factious. 
It actually says to reject a factious man after a first and second warning. And when we go through the steps, there's actually more than two steps. But why did this person only get two steps? Because you don't want to tell the church to go to them because what are they going to do? They're going to create more factions. They're going to create more division. They're going to spin this tail. And it says, look, first and second, boom. And then you're out. You're out. 1 Corinthians 5, you see that it was open immorality, something that they would not repent of. In Acts 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira in the ultimate act of church discipline. They died because they lied. But they didn't lie just to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And they would not, when Peter confronted them, they didn't fess up. And they were made an example of here. In Galatians, uh, the church of Galatia, it could be that if you're preaching another gospel, that was reason for someone to be put on church discipline. But it's a protection for the church. What about the process of discipline? And this is also is equally as important as why we do it. It's how we do it, okay? We don't want to burn people. We don't want to embarrass people. Uh, we, we don't want to, you know, expose people in that regard, okay? We want to love and care and foster unity. We don't want this uh, holy roller police mentality that's happening. So it starts out with this. First step. Show him his sin in private. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. I know, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. How did I possibly come up with step one? Who could have? If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now, this can actually apply to any sin, okay? So you know that your friend snuck out without their parents' permission. I'm not saying that you're going to be put on church discipline for that. But you can go to them in private. You don't have to call them out. You don't have to blast. You don't have to put up a group me with, you know, 20 of your closest friends or something like that. You go to them friend to friend and you say, hey, look, what you're doing right now is not honoring and obeying your mom and dad. Hey, I struggle with it too. But let's do the right thing. And if they say, ah, you know what? You're right. And they repent. Awesome. That's what we need, Okay. None of, us are, none of us are perfect. We all struggle with sin. And we need people in our life to graciously call us back to doing what is the right thing. That's great. You go to them in private. Now, it could be we've had situations where whether it's a man who, who has left his wife or a wife that has left her husband and a friend, someone who knows them, goes to them and says, hey, look, you need, you need to return. You need to come back. You need to give up this sin. And if they say, you know what, you're right. Look, we don't rake them over the coals. We don't embarrass them. You, you don't even know how many times that, is, that has happened within the context of the church. Okay, not often. But there's that rebuke and there's that repentance and there's that restoration that goes there. Okay, you show it to them in private. But what happens if they don't listen? What happens if they don't listen? says, take two or more witnesses with you. Where did I get that from? Verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. And you thought I was really smart, right? I'm just reading what it says. 
Why? So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now it's just not me versus you. And this is an Old Testament quote, all caps. That's how the Old Testament law worked, right? If you had two or three witnesses to verify, it wasn't just one person. Because one person could have a grudge. One person could misremember that type of thing. I've confronted you. You did not repent. I'm going to go and I'm going to get some other people. Uh, reputable people that aren't going to gossip and slander. And we're going to go and we're going to confront you. And we're going to talk with you about this. And we're going to call you to repentance. And again, if they repent, then you've won your brother. That's awesome. That's good. But what if they don't repent? It says, then you tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Now, what does that mean, tell it to the church? It doesn't mean that you blast it on the Countryside Facebook page. It doesn't mean that you tweet it out to everybody you know. It actually means you come and you tell the elders. Right? If the elders already are not involved, okay, this would be the step that they're involved. And then the elders have some choices there. They, they most likely will go talk to these people on their own to verify it and to do some more research and to find out what's going on. But they're going to bring up the steps of church discipline. Look, you're, this is the third step. They've confronted. They've brought witnesses. We're now in step three. Step three is not a good place to be. And I can tell you, all right, I'm not going to give examples but we've had people repent at every step of this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? But if step three doesn't work, well, then we do, right? If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So they're put out of the church. That's what happens. And it, it sounds harsh, right? It sounds mean. It sounds wicked, but it's right, and it's a protection, okay? So protection. It says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. Now, I want to pause there. Why did I include this, okay? You know what most people use this verse for? They call it fellowship. Look, you're praying for it, I'm praying for it, boom, going to happen. New English teacher, I pray for it, you pray for it, yes. You and me, you and me, we make a church. We're together and he's in our midst. He's talking about church discipline, people. Talk about church discipline. That's what the context of this is, okay? Now, when it comes to this process, all right, we're, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the details in a moment, all right? The pitfalls of church discipline would, first of all, be simply not doing it. Simply not doing it. Some would say, well, don't judge, man. Don't judge me. That's so judgmental. Isn't that harsh? Well, if you go to Matthew 7... Do not judge so that you'll not be... Oh, wait, no, that's the wrong chapter. Read on. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite! 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's going on here? It's, it's not saying you can't judge whether someone's in sin or not. It's saying you first need to evaluate your own walk and testimony and heart and life. So if you go to that friend and you confront them for disobeying their mom and dad, but they know that you're doing the exact same thing at the same time, you have this beam in your own eye and you can't see clearly. So our walk with the Lord, we need to remember, is for our enjoyment and for the glory of God and it's to be a light, but it's also for those that are around us. I want to take care of my business as a Christian so that I have the right heart and the right mindset to help other people that are in need. Being patient and forgiving and gracious, knowing that I'm only where I'm at by the grace of God. But we need to do this. This is something we're commanded to do. Uh, uh, a wrong way to do it would be heavy-handedness. Something where you're trying to, to dictate a situation or you're doing it from a sense of entitlement or a sense of, uh, of power. Could be skipping steps. One person and then boom, you put them out. We don't want to skip the steps that are there. We want to give them time to repent. Could be failing to teach the church before practicing it. So, you know, sometimes with, when new pastors go to a new church, they're like, look, there's a, there's a Margaret Healthy Church. We got to do it. Let's go. But they didn't take the time. So, uh, you know, a friend of mine, he went to a church in Lubbock. And they didn't have elders. And we're going to talk about leadership. I think it's Sunday, maybe, maybe next Wednesday. Okay. And as a pastor, he said, look, when you hire me, we are going to have elders because that's the biblical model. And those hiring him said, sure. And it took him like five years before he installed the first elder. Why? We don't just mow over people. He took time and he taught through Titus. And then he trained the men, and then he appointed, all right? So you want to make sure that you teach it before practicing it. Uh, carrying out discipline for issues that are not clearly sinful, you need chapter and verse. Chapter and verse when it comes to that sin that's there. You need to be able to associate it with that. Carrying out discipline, even though they've expressed repentance, and you're like, come on, someone would do that. It's happened. Just because the people in charge wanted to embarrass someone else. It's sad. Failing to be clear with them about the process when they're in it. You know, our elders, and I think I have this in the next slide. Um, you know, we write letters, actually. And the letters are given for the steps. So that there's no question where we are in the process. Failing to restore a repentant person publicly after they've been put out. Maybe you feel like you won and you don't need to change anything. But we need to go back and restore that person. Using discipline as a threat to manipulate members of the church. Hey, if you bring that up, I'm going to put you on church discipline. If you don't do what I like, I think we're going to put you on church discipline. And unfortunately, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen these things happen. I've seen these things happen. Now, by the grace of God, our elders don't do this. We do things God's way. We do them the right way with the right steps. And it's very deliberate. And sometimes people are like, why are you being so slow with this? Because look, we want to go through every step painstakingly clear and consistent with God's word. 
so that we don't miss anything, we don't manipulate anything, we don't twist anything. We want to give this person an abundant amount of time to repent before we move on to the next step. So those are some of the pitfalls of discipline. When it comes to, to our church, is church discipline a mark of our church? Well, yes, it is. All right? For some of you, thankfully, you haven't seen our church do this. And I was just thinking last month, you know, our, our elders meetings are kind of long sometimes, most times. And I was just thinking, we haven't had any of those like drag out 45 minute discussions over some oozy, yucky sin that some person's going through. And by the grace of God, thank you, Lord. But man, we've had a lot of things that we've gone through like this. And we have had people that we have put out of the church. And they have completely abandoned the faith. And they've converted to Mormonism. And they have run headlong into whatever. And that's a protection for our church. Those people were going to drag you down. Those people were going to deceive you. Those people were going to manipulate you and try to lead you astray. And we got them out. There's other people that have been put out. And God used that to save them. God used that to change their heart. And they said, thank you. I never would have changed if the whole church hadn't done this to me. We're talking couples that have come to know the Lord. We're talking about individuals that have come to know the Lord. It's amazing. It's great. So our church has been very faithful to go through this process. And we do it in a way that the Lord has blessed that. But how does our church practically implement it? Okay? So step one, as I mentioned before, is one-on-one. Is -on -one. And we would do that one person, whether it's counseling, maybe you take someone out to lunch, maybe it's a coffee, something like that, all right? That's one-on-one. -on -one. That's step one. Step two, we're going to take two or more witnesses. Most of the time, it's taken to the board, and then we'll say, yes, let's proceed to step two, or it's already been done in some way. We've even had, you know, elders travel across state lines and things. You know, uh, there was a time that Dusty and I went all the way to College Station. And we met with a young man who had professed to know the Lord while he was here. And he went AWOL when he was at school. And so Dusty and I went down to, to confront him. Two or more witnesses. Um, we take a letter along with them, which is called the third step letter. And it says, we explain, if you do not repent, then we will institute the third step. The third step, we give them time, all right? The third step lets them know that the elders have been notified and that we are actually going to bring this to the church. And we're going to let the church know exactly what's going on and exactly what's happening, okay? When do we do this typically? Can you answer this question? Mr. Dees? After communion. Okay, and I know, I know, in the back of your mind, every time you take communion, you're wondering, is this the time, okay? I think we kind of tweaked that a little bit to where we have, we have told people that there's a family matter that we need to take care of. And if you're not normally a part of the countryside 
family, then you're welcome to head out. And then boom, the guests like scatter. Like, what's happening here? Are they going to sign me up to work in the nursery or, or what's going on? All right. So we've tried, to, we've tried to soften that blow a little bit. Okay. But that's typically we associate it with communion because we're thinking about our own heart and our own sin. And we're confessing that sin before the Lord. Okay. We tell the church. And we do it not to shame not to embarrass, but we want people to go and say, hey, I love you. I want you to repent. Hey, I heard this was going on. We want you to change. And so we encourage people to do that, all right? Encourage people to do that. The fourth step, we give them time. It's not just like, hey, 30 seconds, you didn't repent, you're gone. Then we come back and we report to the church that we have put them out of the church. And even, you know, this, there's a fourth step letter. All right, you don't want to get Tom's fourth step letter, and it has the date, and it states the specific scripture that they are refusing to repent of, and it gives a description of the process and what that looks like. And essentially, just like with Matthew 18, what we're saying is, look, you, you, you can't be a member here. You can't act like everything's okay. And now... Can they attend every once in a while? Can they do, you know, those types of things we kind of take by a case-by-case basis type of thing. But essentially, we've, we've put them out of the church and we've called them to repentance. Do you think any of this is easy? Most of the time, all right, the elders meeting starts at 7. You know what time most of this starts? It's like at the 10 p.m. hour. All right? And I'm like grooving and moving at 10 p.m. The other elders, not so much, right? So we're slugging through this from 10 to 11 p.m. We're pouring over this. Our hearts are breaking. We know that the wake of sin and everything that's going on. But what I want you to take from this is, this is what a church does. It's not easy. But it sure is profitable. And I am thankful that our church does this. Because you know what it reminds me? If I step out of the bounds of God's word, this is what my church would do. And I love them for it. And you should love them for it. If you're in Christ, you will struggle with sin until the day you die. But we struggle with sin. We repent together. We call each other to forgiveness. We love. We're gracious. We're forgiving. And this process is a part of that. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you are a good and kind God. That you would ever be so patient with us is something we totally do not deserve. You have every right to annihilate us the moment that we sin. But by your grace, you offer forgiveness to the cross of Jesus Christ. Even when we are in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, when we, are, when we sin, you call us back gently to repentance. We thank you for this process. We thank you for the faithful men that have carried this out for decades at our church. And we love you and thank you, Lord, for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.